Welcome to You, Me, Us Now with Mike McGinn. That is one of my favorite songs. Sometimes things are happening in the world that you just have to do something about it. You got to speak up. You got to express yourself. And that's why I chose that song to start this one. And we have a guest today, Emily Johnston, who is active with the local organization of 350. And we'd met a few times, but we really started, we actually spent a little bit of time working together when we learned kind of at the last minute that Shell Oil was bringing the Polar Pioneer and the rest of its Arctic oil drilling fleet to Seattle um, in preparation to explore for oil in the Arctic. And and I and Emily, as well as the Sierra Club and Greenpeace, wrote an op-ed, put it into the local paper, asking Shell not to be here. And this whole thing is now blown up into national and international news what's going on. There's something about bringing a Shell Oil Arctic drilling rig into the middle of liberal Seattle that kind of causes that to happen. And I wanted to talk to Emily about that and also talk about what's going to happen next as well as what else she's worked on in her life and how she got herself to this point. So anyway, welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you very much, Mike. Okay, so (laughs) let's just start with Shell. What was your reaction when you learned that Shell was going to be here? Uh, I was completely appalled. You know, Shell was here, of course, in 2012 as well. And we've known for a long time that Arctic drilling is a terrible idea um, and that it's particularly ironic, of course, because they can only drill due to the effects of climate change. And then they want to create more climate change, basically, by being up there. But this year in January, uh, there was an article in the journal Nature that actually spelled out which reserves we cannot burn if we have any hope, if we want to have even a 50% chance of staying below two degrees of warming. Well, let's let's dig into that a little bit because okay. I do think that's a really important background for a lot of people, mm-hmm. which is the idea of doing the math and keeping it in the ground. Right. Explain that to us. So uh, we have at least three times as many known reserves uh, of fossil. The, in the, the fossil fuel companies have on their books now at least three times as many fossil fuels as we can safely burn without causing a complete uh, breakdown of the climate system, basically. And so their uh, their stock prices are based on exploiting all of these resources that the rest of the world is depending on them not to exploit. You mentioned the Nature article. So what did the Nature article say? They they basically broke down which are the worst reserves in terms of their climate impacts. So, for example, a lot of people know that tar sands are a particularly bad climate impact. It causes much more climate change just to extract it, uh, even before you burn it, um, than other oils do. And the same is true for Arctic drilling in the sense that they they said uh, we can't have any Arctic drilling at all if we want to stay below that uh, catastrophic warming, you know, two degrees Celsius. This was for me kind of a a real change in the tenor and pitch about how I did my climate work. Sure. Right. And and I'd been working on climate for a while. We invited Bill McKibben out Mm -hmm. to the city of Seattle. Well, actually, he was coming out anyway because he was launching a tour called Do the Math, which he was going through that math, which Mm -hmm. is which is that. Something like 80% of the known reserves had to stay in the ground. It's a really that the article in which he described that is a super powerful uh, article, which I think everybody should read who cares about this. And he explained that logic to us. And I'd read the article, and he also explained what we thought we should do about it. 
And I want to say that the change in tenor and pitch that I mentioned was I'd worked a lot in the years before on how do we reduce consumption? How do we, you know, replace cars with walking, biking, and electrified transit? How do we, you know, replace coal plants with solar and wind and, and better things? And this was a totally different way of looking at it, which was we could reduce our consumption, but the real key was how do we keep it in the ground? Absolutely. And that was my reaction then to, to seeing, you know, that we're going to participate here in Seattle right. with drilling the very oil that we know has to stay in the ground. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't make any sense. And the thing is, it locks us in. You know, they've already spent something like $7 billion uh, in their pursuit of Arctic drilling. And if they you know, uh, spend several billion more, there's no way on earth they're going to not extract as much oil as they possibly can in order to pay that back. And so, you know, by allowing them to begin this, like I said, it locks us in to a lot of climate change uh, and we just can't afford it. One of the things that was organized in response to Shell coming here, there's a lot of things that happened. First, there was a lot of lobbying of the Port Commission mm. to not allow it. Tell me, tell me what happened there. So uh, we regularly, all the different groups involved in this, regularly turned out dozens and in a couple cases, hundreds of people for these hearings. Uh, and it was very passionate testimony, a lot of it incredibly articulate from many, many different angles. And everybody was unified in saying, like, no, we can't have this. We, we want nothing to do with this. You're a public entity. You know, you can't make us responsible for this. You know, we elected you. We can unelect you. You, you know, basically, you know, everybody did everything they could to approach it from that angle and and to reason with the Port Commission. And I think they understood reasonably quickly, uh, not quickly enough, but reasonably quickly that they'd made a big mistake when they went ahead with the lease. Uh, I think, you know, at this point in time, they regret that greatly uh, because it's caused them a lot of trouble and a lot of bad press. But at the time, you know, they were just so bent on business as usual. And they kept saying, well, yeah, but if we don't do it, somebody else will. And of course, you can always use that argument. Right. Um, and, you know, not only that, but we're actually not sure that argument is true. Uh, we, Our understanding is that the only other place where they could get all this same work done is Dutch Harbor, and it's a lot more expensive for them to operate in Dutch Harbor. And, and therefore, basically what we're doing is bending over backwards to make their catastrophic project cheaper, and that's obviously not something we want to be doing. Now, you were the organizers of, of a protest that had wonderful visuals, which yeah. was, there's now a new name, the Kayaktivists, who yep. all gathered and went out into Elliott Bay and up the Duwamish River to protest the Polar Pioneer and yeah. the drilling rig being here. Tell me about organizing that. It was great. You know, the, the whole thing, I have found this issue to be incredibly heartening because I have never seen people jump in as quickly and as wholeheartedly as I have seen them jump in on this issue. So from every level and every angle, you know, everything from the, the sort of more cautious NGOs that work on uh, lots of in good environmental issues to the direct action folks, you know, and, and everybody in between. You know, everybody wanted to take part in this. Everybody wanted to help. And, you know, people with a lot of different philosophical ideas about, you know, what the problem is and, you know, what's the best way to stop it, nevertheless, you know, found ways to work together really effectively, I thought. So I participated in that. And I, I, I own a kayak. I own two kayaks. I own a rowboat. I'm a member of the seafaring public here in mm -hmm. Seattle or mm -hmm. the bayfaring public, maybe. <laughs> and um, I went down and it was, of course, like a lot of fun at first, everybody out on the water together, everyone in the boat. And then I remember kind of rounding the corner to head up the Duwamish and get really getting close to the, the rig. And we were led by a number of Native American mm. canoes with Native Americans in it. I want to say that that just sobered me incredibly when I saw the oil rig. Yeah, absolutely. 
we've been, we were talking about this and I've thought a lot about extractly, abstractly the idea that you have to leave it in the ground. Mm. And there it was right in front of us, the actual tool mm-hmm. that would be used to extract it mm-hmm. and change our future. And, you know, I have to admit, I felt a little bit offended too, that my tax dollars, because the port is supported by tax dollars, Absolutely. is being used to facilitate this Absolutely. thing that so many of us find objectionable. And I've worked on this a lot. I think that was the, you know, probably one of the most visceral feelings I had, mm. you know, just seeing it there, just like, well, there it is. Yes. That's, that's the tool. That's the thing that'll do it. So how long have you been working with 350 locally? Uh, I was one of the founders. Um, and so we got started in May uh, two years ago. And, and and how long have you been doing global warming work? Uh, I got back into activism only in uh, 2011 with the Keystone XL protests. Uh, you know, I had been worried about climate change for a long time. I actually, my, my brother recommended The End of Nature to me when it first came out in 89. Um, and since then, I'd sort of paid a lot of attention and read a lot about it. And, and I had grown increasingly distressed uh, and concerned over the years, um, but resisted sort of doing anything about it, frankly, apart from sort of personal choices. When I read James Hansen's quote about it's game over for the climate if we, if they build Keystone XL or if they fully exploit the tar sands, there was, that was just the point at which I could no longer live with myself if I wasn't actively involved. And, and so, you know, one of the things about something like an arrest action is that it begins to feel proportionate to the problem. You know, signing petitions doesn't feel proportionate to the problem. You know, writing to your congressman doesn't feel proportionate to the problem. Uh, so there, you know, and certainly, you know, switching light bulbs, et cetera, doesn't feel, you know, like you're actually having a real impact. Um, but I thought with something like the protests at the White House that were being organized, there was at least a chance that it would have an impact. And, you know, I think history And so has, did you do that? I did do that, yes. Tell me about that. Uh, it was great. You know, it was something I was nervous about. I also felt conflicted about flying to D.C. in order to <laughs> participate in a climate change action. But, you know, I've always found Bill McKibben to be an incredibly articulate sort of uh, leader of the movement. And, you know, whatever he says always makes sense to me, basically. Um, and so I trusted the, you know, 350 as a strategist in this matter and and thought, OK, well, this is certainly going to help more than anything else I would do that week is going to help. You know, you can't always think, is this going to be the thing that changes everything? Because you never know that. But you can think, like, this week, is this the most important thing I could be doing? And, and that's basically how I chose to look at it. Wow. Now, you said this was a return to activism. So had you taken some time off? I had, yeah, 25 years, just a few <laughs> years. Uh, well, I, uh, in my late teens, early 20s, uh, I was active with NOW in Boston. What, what did you do for, with NOW? You know, we did a lot of things. I, w- I was actually employed by them. And, and then after I stopped being their office manager, I was also still on the board. We had three big focuses when I was there. We The anti-Bork campaign, which we were obviously su- successful at, and uh, the ERA, which we were less successful at. And then also we helped to organize the first big gay rights march in D.C., Back in 87. Wow. So. But at some point, you, you went in a different direction from activism. I did. Yeah. I, you know, I, it was always a funny fit for me, and it still is, to be honest, uh, because I'm a writer and I'm a very private person. And the problem with being a writer and being an activist is that it will, going home to maybe write or maybe not write, will never feel more important than what it is you could stay at work to do. You know, so whether it's more phone banking or more this or more that, you at least know those things have a chance of having a real impact in the world. And there's so many injustices in the world that like you, you would never 
leave if you were being wholly moral in that particular way. But I wanted to have a private life. I wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to focus on things that were not just the injustices of the world. And so, you know, I decided that I would just leave altogether for a while and then maybe eventually get back in. I didn't really realize it would be 25 years. <clears throat> but, but it happened. It did. It happened, and it happened big time. I mean, I was really blown away, not just by the action out there on the water, but there was something about the visual. I'm trying to figure out what happened. It was something about the visual as well as the narrative story. The photos of the kayaks and the protesters went international. I don't think I've ever seen an action that got this much media coverage. I was not prepared for that. And, you know, I'm the uh, communications coordinator at 350 Seattle. And so it's my job to be sort of focused on that part of it. And I actually wasn't thinking about that at all. Uh, and I, it, the level of attention that it got media-wise really came as a huge surprise. But I think it makes a lot of sense because the the visuals are great in terms of the David versus Goliath thing, you know? Uh, I mean, you have all these tiny little kayaks, you know, on a very, very human scale and lots and lots of them. So it's clear that lots and lots of people care about this. Uh, and they're colorful and they're bright and they look, you know, like I said, human scale. And then you have the, this enormous monster and everything that it represents, you know, I think it serves as the perfect metaphor, really, because you know, we are those kayaks, and climate change is that monster. It is the polar pioneer. It's it's interesting because Seattle finds itself at the center of a whole bunch of climate things yes. right now. Yes. Yeah. You know, I um, appeared at a press conference with you on oil trains coming through Seattle, mm -hmm. which have the potential to explode, but they're also bringing the oil from the oil fields, you know, in the middle of the country uh, to be refined. I, as mayor, I worked on coal trains, and mm -hmm. I bet you we were both down at Myrtle Edwards Park mm -hmm. when Bill McKibben came to town and there was a rally there against coal trains. It's, it's the specific Northwest. It turns out it's like this crossroads right. in the keep it in the ground movement, literally a crossroads yeah. between coal, Arctic oil drilling, shale oil. And I, I said Pacific Northwest, not just Seattle because our neighbor to the North, mm. Vancouver and British Columbia, sure. right there. Yeah. All of that oil and coal and natural gas in the interior of the country has to find its way to the coastline for export. Yeah. And you've got this strip of Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, B.C., with a lot of folks that don't agree with that. Exactly. This is the next thing. I understand this is not private information. You wrote an article earlier this week <laughs> that went online. And if this week works out as planned, by the end of the week, I will have committed a crime. And you spoke about your willingness to engage in civil disobedience to try to prevent the polar pioneer from leaving Seattle to make it to the Arctic. Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> how do you, how, who does, well, that's why you're here. <laughs> who does such a thing? And what are you thinking, Emily? Uh, well, you know, the, so nobody thinks this is the best way to make policy. This should be happening, uh, you know, the global leaders should have come together long before now. You know, we're at COP, what, 22, 23, whatever it is this year. Um, and, you know, we should have carbon pricing. There should be, all, you know, th this is a problem that has to be attacked, you know, nationally and globally. On the other hand, that hasn't, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and the truth is that very, very few major moments of social change, which this is gonna, going to have to be one, have taken place without, uh, civil disobedience and without people in the streets, basically. And so if, you know, I, it, at this point in time, I think a lot of people feel that global and national leaders have failed us and state and to some degree local leaders have failed us, although some have certainly been very active with us on this particular issue. And so, like, we have to make it really clear that that we do not accept business as usual. We cannot have these kinds of things happening. Uh, our, our lives are on the line. 
the lives of everybody else in the world are on the line. And in, and we can't simply sit by and watch it happen. You know, I think people, and again, it's the, it's a whole issue of proportionality. You know, it feels like the right thing to do to go and put my body in the way of that machine uh, leaving and going up to the Arctic because the consequences of, of, of the polar pioneer leaving and drilling in the Arctic are just so tremendous. I mean, the stakes are so high that nothing short of, you know, basically, you know, putting myself at risk in that way feels like it's a logical statement, basically. You know, in, in a way, you're right that it's, it's a kind of self-expression and it's a kind of way of saying, like, look, we have to stop this. I am willing to do this. Um, and, and there are a lot of us willing to do this. That's the other thing that's interesting. You're far from alone, are you? I, right. I will not speak for anybody else, but, uh, but I am by no means alone. What do you anticipate it might be like out there? That's really hard to say. You know, there's, uh, you know, when you're out there in kayaks, you know, you're very vulnerable on the one hand. And, you know, the sound is a dangerous place. The water is very, very cold. You know, so you have to be very attentive to all the safety considerations. And it's possible they could scoop us all up, you know, within, I don't know how many, you know, how long does it take to arrest, you know, dozens of people in kayaks? I'm not sure, you know, but the hope is that we can hold it uh, for longer than that. And it can be kind of tricky, actually, to take people in who are in kayaks who don't want to go. So, so we do hope that it will be sort of a meaningful period of time, that it will be more than just a statement, basically. Right. So, right. I was just going to say that, that this is, in some respects, it's more than symbolic. Right. It's it not is. just saying we feel so strongly we'll accept a consequence. It's right. actually hoping to maybe make a difference in its ability to get there. Right. Absolutely. You know, some people would say just let the, it's legal activity, mm-hmm. your active actions are better spent. And- pushing on the federal government to outlaw it. Right. We, uh, we've certainly done that, too. I mean, it, that, you know, that's such a false dichotomy. It's like, you know, I, I get sometimes pushed back on Twitter or somewhere else, and people say, well, I prefer to work for solutions. And, you know, the, the implication <laughs> is that there are these noisy protests. And then the other implication sometimes is that there are the serious people who work on the policy issues, you know, who quietly work very hard on policy issues. And then there are the rowdy protesters who are just in it for the press. And it, it, the truth is that it's actually the same people for the most part. I don't know anybody who works on this stuff on the policy side who isn't also out there engaged in this kind of thing. And, and I know very few people who are engaged in the protests who don't also take part in the political uh, process. And, and so, you know, especially at this point in time where people understand that the political, political process has failed us on this so far and we can't afford it. The thing is, we only have a couple of years, two, three years maybe, in order to start really seriously turning this around. And, and so we can't wait for this to, you know, sort of be something that everybody agrees on at the political level and that people very politely move very gradually towards, gosh, maybe we'll have a $10 and then a $20 and then a $30 price on carbon, you know, that kind of thing. We, there's just, we just don't have the time for it. The name of the show was You, Me, Us, Now. And uh, you were just really hitting the now part <laughs> of the title. I really appreciate you coming on because it's that sense of, We share this place. We share a future. We all share a destiny, whether we care to or not. And but it's ultimately the consequence of individuals choosing where they want to stand and what they want to do that that's going to take you where you want to go. Yeah. The the other thing I would say, actually, in terms of the now part, is that the only reason it's 
is so important right now is that we have failed it till now. So climate change is already happening in other places. You know, if, if you talk to people who've been through, you know, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, or if you talk to people in Bangladesh who've been, you know, flooded out of their homes in Pakistan, hundreds of thousands of people, you know. So we know that climate change is already making those things much more likely. And so there are people who are suffering profoundly, you know, and in Syria, you look what's happening in the, in the Middle East. A lot of that is very closely related to drought and to climate issues. And, and although climate change does affect us all, it doesn't affect us all equally. And so that's the other part of this movement in Seattle that people, I think, are feel pretty deeply, which is that we live in this very beautiful and very privileged place. Uh, and we're very lucky, and it probably won't affect us directly very much. Um, but we have a real responsibility to using that privilege and that luck to make sure that it we don't let Shell and the other oil companies just roll over the parts of the world that are already suffering from this. So, you know, to the extent that we're being made complicit, we're going to stand up and say, no, we want no part of that, and, and people are really suffering, and, and, and it's up to us to make sure that doesn't happen or that it happens as little as possible. So let's turn to that question of, you know, solutions. What should happen? Uh, well, one solution, they, they should absolutely, um, the federal government should absolutely, you know, make sure that, that no Arctic drilling happens this season, you know, and, and there are any number of permits that Shell still has to get. With luck, there's been enough attention to this issue that at least they can't be rubber stamped. That's worth something. And the other worst actors also have to have to be stopped. So tar sands, you know, there are a bunch right. of scientists who put out a statement just yesterday or the day before about how tar sands ex expansion simply can't happen. We can't afford it. Um, and then obviously we need to move to renewables and, and you know, all kinds of clean energy. And I don't think people appreciate often like the level of and a recent paper came out, the level of subsidies, for example, for right. oil and gas production. Absolutely. We tend to think that Absolutely. this is just the marketplace happening right. and the oil companies are responding to consumer demand right. and they don't see the literally trillions of dollars in tax breaks or subsidies yep. for moving it around or refining it or the rest. Yep. And, you know, so removing the subsidies... Mm -hmm taxing it, mm. not granting permits, mm. and actually dramatically changing the system is, I agree with you, is required immediately. And I'll make the link back. I think sometimes people say, well, that's a solution, but the other things you're doing, mm -hmm. whether it's protesting or divestment, aren't. And I think that leaves out the fact that in order for those really hard solutions to be implemented, the political climate has to change first. Absolutely. People's minds have to be changed Absolutely. first. Yeah. And that takes a, a a whole bunch of things that have to have to happen first. I just want to say I really appreciate you coming on and just letting me know what you think because you did it, Thank Emily. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thanks. Obviously, I, I invite people on the show to a great degree. They're people that I've met and admire. So I very much admire the work you've been doing and appreciate it. And I love the way in which you've been coming into the environmental groups in the state of Washington and shaking them up a little bit with some intensity. You've been a lot of fun to work with, I, I've, I've noticed. You. Same here. <laughs> so one of the things I like to do, I started with my song. I like to finish with a song picked by a guest. And you want to finish with? Wake Up Everybody. And Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. <laughs> You're dating yourself a little bit with that one. <laughs> I'm dating my brother, actually. <laughs> Is that one of his faves? Uh, yeah. Uh, my siblings are all notably older than I am, and uh, you know they influenced my musical tastes considerably. There you go. So. I've always loved that song, too. Tell me why you picked it. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it's another moment in, in historical time when big changes were happening, and it, in a really non-polemical, great way, I find it very inspiring. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. 
Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed No more back to thinking, time for thinking ahead The world has changed so very much from what it used to be There's so much hatred, war and poverty Oh, 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 o